My name is Andy Cahill. I'm a transformational coach, and I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an incredible array of practitioners, all working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dawn. My guest today is Rada Jovovich. Rada is a remarkably multifaceted human being who moves skillfully and creatively through many different contexts. She's an experienced coach, mediator, trainer, facilitator, rugby player, artist. She's based out of Chicago, but she works with clients from across the country and across the world. She also co-leads the Rising Practitioners Circle, a national collaborative community of practice and growth for transformational practitioners, of which I am a part. And she founded the next-gen consultancy, The Darkest Horse, focused on helping teams build integrated future-of-work talent management strategies, policies, and cultural practices that support a culture of diversity, equity, accessibility, and radical inclusion. Our conversation today is a fantastic one. We look at what it is to be someone who has many identities and how to let go of those parts of you that keep telling you you're not worthy of living the life you're called to. So let's dive in. Rada Jovovich, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Andy Cahill, thank you for having me. So good to have you here. So people will have heard your intro. They know all the amazing stuff that you're up to in the world as a coach and a consultant and an entrepreneur. But I want to just share how I experience you. And maybe we can start there because I experience you as this really wonderfully complex human being who moves fluidly through a lot of different contexts. You know, mm. you're comfortable in artistic settings. You're comfortable in corporate settings. You're comfortable in spiritual settings. You're comfortable just like moving through all of these contexts with a lot of grace and authenticity. And I think that's such a valuable way of being to model for people because so often we spend time like in our role and we think that role is the whole of ourselves. You know, I'm a father or uh, I'm an entrepreneur or I have a day job. And you sort of seem to hold all of these roles really kind of gracefully. I just would like mm. love to hear how that lands with you and see, see if you have anything to say about that. Um, yeah, what a beautiful place to start. Thank you. I, um, yeah, and I am really just very glad to be here. So thank you again for, for this space. Uh, that is a great question. And I have so many answers. I think um, one place to start is that so much of my work, um, so, you know, the the work that I do around inclusion consulting, the coaching work that I do, um, and you know the ways that I am that I show up on teams uh, is really about intersectionality, right? And about all of the different identities, skills, talents that we hold, the, the uniquenesses of every person on the team. Um, and when I say intersectionality, you know what I mean is exactly what you're talking about. Nobody is one thing. Um, so if, you know, if I'm, if, if I'm walking into a room, I am walking in with some of my obvious identities. I show up, um, I, most people can tell that I'm white. Um, and so far I've only I encountered one situation where someone did not identify that I am a uh, cisgender female. Um, and you know, I, I show up, you can see the size and shape of me. You can, you, sometimes people can spot that that means I'm a rugby player. Um, you know, and then there's all the invisible identities, right? I'm, I'm not always identifiable as queer. Um, I'm not always identifiable as uh, a data nerd, (laughs) you know, um, there's so many things that you can't necessarily see. And all of those come with me as well. You know, the fact that, um, I am, sort of of immigrant descent. I'm first first slash second generation, depending on how you count. Um, that I'm from Chicago, but that I lived outside Chicago for a long time. You know, all of these things are part of in what I'm showing up with um, and pretending that only the visible ones are the ones that matter 
or that only one of them matters um, is fundamentally flawed. Um, and I think that I really like to carry that into how I perceive other people, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. I am not immune to bias. Um, and there are ways that I perceive folks and understand what that means about how they move through the world um, and how they show up. But there's so many other parts, right? Socioeconomic status really changes what kind of white you are, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and physical ability or neurodiversity really changes what kind of educated you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all sorts of, of ways that this stuff gets really complicated in ways that you can't really predict. And, and so I say all that because a lot of my work is really encouraging folks to show up um, with all of those parts fully embodied and fully um, present and actualized. And the reason that I'm obsessed with that is, um, and I'll get kind of to where I come from and my origin story and how that matters, but I have discovered that my favorite thing about other people is the thing about them that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, when I meet somebody and I perceive them to be um, not showing up in a way that uh, that I haven't seen before, right? So if they're showing up trying to fit a certain mold, I often am less interested. But when somebody's showing up and I'm like, "Ooh, I've never seen that before." That's my new that's my new obsession, right? I like mm-hmm. I want to I want to mm-hmm. really connect and understand this this new person, this new way of being that I'm observing. And I think when you point to um, the ways that I show up in spaces. Um, and, you know, I think one of the roots there is, um, my work really does straddle this like art and science. Right. Um, and I do a lot of what I talk about in my coaching work, especially is bridging between like creativity and operation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I credit a lot of that to, you know, my, my family of origin, my parents, especially, um, where, you know, and but my siblings as well, I kind of come from a family of technical artists, right? Mm-hmm. My, my mom is a visual artist, um, but she approaches her art like an engineer, um, where she, her whole life has just loved learning new media and really mastering them. Um, so she was a potter for, for 20 years and just the, the kinds of engineering feats she accomplished with clay were wild. Um, she's worked with titanium, which is, a very uh, bizarre medium for art, um, but has all these really cool scientific pop- properties that when you like run voltage through it, it turns colors. And it's just, it's, and she makes it, it, that both makes it do things that nothing else can do and also constrains it in what you can do because you can't do kind of classic metal work with it. Um, so she's a very, you know, she knows how to make things um, and she does it artistically. So she uses that, that engineering for art. And similarly, my dad is a writer um, but before that he was a mathematician and he writes nonfiction. Um, and he writes about, you know, how business works, how marketing works, how, um, people think, how changing cities change the way that we learn. Um, and so there it's, I, I kind of come from this space where it's like you, the beauty is in holding both, um, and making technical art, right. And, and artistic, um, techniques. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I kind of went on a few different roads there, but <laughs> I love it. There's a theme emerging for me from everything you shared about inviting people into the invisible and doing that mm. through through curiosity, through learning new techniques, new methods, through integrating seemingly disparate disciplines into something that is uniquely like for your mom. It's like this uniquely her creativity because she's bringing these two disciplines together. Is that right? Yeah, no. Yeah. I think that's, that's exactly right. That's, that's where innovation lives, right? That's where, um, and sometimes I call it innovation and sometimes I call it magic, right? And that's (laughs) depending on who the audience is, right? Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Is, is cause that's, I think that's part of this obsession I have with, seeing things that I've never seen before mm. um, because that makes new things possible. Mm. Um, and it's, and it is kind of, it's, 
it's fundamentally inspirational uh, because not only does it say, oh, that's a new thing that I can experience, but it's always like, if, if I can experience that, what does that mean I could probably also experience? Yeah, yeah, lovely. You said earlier something to the effect of what you do as a coach, and maybe you actually were saying what you do in general, but I heard what you do as a coach is help people actualize all these parts of themselves or all of these facets of themselves. And in my experience, that, that makes for great coaching because often we encounter the part of someone that they're unconscious of, but is, that is dominant, right? So they, they're like, this is who I am and this is what I'm showing you. And like for you in a social setting, you might be like, ah, oh, okay, I've seen that before. But as a coach, how do you start to draw someone past that, for lack of a better word, first layer of the onion into helping mm-hmm. them explore in, way, in ways maybe they never have before that they are also multiply complex with all of these different parts and identities like how do you draw someone into that and help them get curious the way that you're so curious about it Mm, yeah um it's there's a few pieces i think um one big piece of it is there's a lot of opportunity in exploring separating the ego from the various parts of the superego Um, and by that, I mean, um, when you, we are all heavily socialized, Mm. um, and we all understand who and how we should be based on these, you know, social systems of understanding of things like gender, race, um, et cetera. And that comes with a lot of shoulds. And should the, the word the word should is one of my favorites, right? Whenever whenever and by favorite and least favorite, whenever I hear a client or somebody, you know, friend, um, partner saying should, it's like my little coaching light goes off, and I say, according to whom, right? Because there's 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 your deeply felt root core um, sense of self. That's your that's your your ego. That's understanding of who you are. And, and everything you do is sort of in protection of that ego. Mm-hmm. Um, and you develop a bunch of these superegos, these, these other kind of identities that you bring in. Um, they tend to come from voices that really matter to you. So they could be parents, they could be mentors, they could be partners, friends, um, bosses. And there's nothing wrong with bringing those people's voices into your system and having them influence you, but they are distinctly not you. Mm. Um, and so being able to understand how to hear them as a helpful force, but still be able to keep access, direct access to um, that core sense of self is really, really important. Mm. And a lot of the time when folks are showing up um, not fully actualized, it is because there's some part of them, there's some superego that is protecting their ego from what's scary about showing up in that way. At some point they learned that that was a, that was threatening to them, um, threatening to their safety, either literally, uh, or sort of in a more, um, deep emotional sense. Uh, so, you know, being able to access that information know that it's there and then make a decision, right? I'm not saying that everybody has to show up um, vulnerably and authentically at all times, but I, I do want it to be on purpose, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and so I think there's um, a lot of my work in not just my coaching, but in my consulting, um, in the way that I am with people is really trying to, sort of, I I call it wiping away the layer of shame that's Mm -hmm. on top of everything, right? Mm -hmm. And saying like, you didn't create this system. You didn't make these circumstances. Um, You are unconditionally worthy. Uh, And so let's, let's, when we release that pressure, what, what do we see underneath it? And what does that make possible? What does this give us? What does that give us access to? Mm -hmm. I was just talking with a client yesterday and this very word came up shame and we identified for her 
what she referred to as the perfectionist, the inner perfectionist. So this kind of mm-hmm. part, which I, which I hear as maybe what you're calling one of these super egos. And we didn't, we didn't spend time figuring out where the inner perfectionist came from. But the, the first thing she noticed was she used that very word. She's like, I feel shame about what we were talking about. And it was mm. just this wonderful moment of, of inviting her to see, okay, so let's just see that the, the part of you, the perfectionist, that wants everything to be perfect is now making you feel bad for not being perfect Mm. at being imperfect, right? Like, so it's sort of like, (laughs) here we are having this deep discussion about being human and it's like, you're not doing it. You're not having the perfect discussion about being human. Yeah. So even as we explore imperfections and our just natural uniqueness, there are parts of us that are going to say, no, you need to do this a right way. You should be doing it this way. And I wonder, does that kind of get at some of what you're describing here? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think there's, um, yeah, the, the frequency with which in coaching sessions and just conversing on deep conversations, it's the, Oh yes, not only the bad feeling, but the shame about having had the bad feeling, (laughs) you know, we want, we really want that layer on top of it. Um, (laughs) not just feeling bad, but feeling bad about feeling bad. Um, and you know, and, and one of the questions I often ask when I hear that voice is, is that a healing way to talk to yourself, mm. right? Like we are, we are trying to reach wholeness. Um, and no matter what you, what you have that you feel needs healing, um, that healing is, is the medicine is not going to be uh, wag, wagging a finger at you and saying, look at you, you're sick. Mm. You know, that's not, that's mm. not the path forward. Mm. Mm. I love that you use the word healing. I was just, you haven't heard the episode yet, but I just did another episode with another amazing practitioner named Dr. Anise Fisher. And she talked about claiming the work that we do as coaches as healing work, which felt for her edgy until she really leaned into it. But like, I want you Mm. to talk more about, you use the words healing and wholeness. And that seems really, that's some, that seems really deep and important. And when people think about, I think, coaching or consulting, I think they're often thinking about just like output. How is my performance going to improve? How is, how is our, how we're going to sell more products or get more clients or whatever it is. But you're, you're talking about something way different here. You're talking about helping someone find wholeness and and heal. Can you say more about why that's so important and, and how that shows up when you do all this very business oriented work and you're talking about healing you talk about how those two polarities kind of dance together yeah um well and the first thing i'll say is that um yeah i don't see them as polarities right i i think that um and first of all a lot of my work is actually in the healthcare space right um and so you know it's healthcare technology for the most part but ultimately like we are in the business of health um, and creating health. And I think um, what's really fun is I actually, uh, so for listeners at home, um, you know, Andy and I share a community of practitioners. We are both members of this community. And um, there's this overwhelming magic in this community. There's so many folks and everyone's doing wild, awesome things. And there's another practitioner um, named Noel. And I'm suddenly realizing that I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name because I just only have to say Noel out loud, out loud. but um, I want to say Yanka. Um, it's spelled J-A-N-K-A. Um, but she is in the process of writing um, a book called Kick-Ass Healing. Um, and I actually had the great honor of being one of her readers to give her some notes and thoughts on it. And, uh, and it's about uh, healing for folks with chronic conditions mm-hmm. and how to create a really radical sense of what it means to heal yourself um, in what can seem like an unhealable um, situation. Mm-hmm. And she talks about healing for individuals and heal- healing for collective and, and community. And we were actually just yesterday, um, at the time of this recording, just yesterday, talking about the book um, and about how, you know, I would recommend it to all sorts of people who don't have chronic conditions because this understanding healing is everything. Mm. Um, and that 
we all collectively and individually have a lot of healing to do. Um, you know, there's all sorts of science showing what folks who don't need science have known for a long time, which is that there are ways that um, generations, uh, past generations trauma mm. changes our biology mm. and changes how our systems work. Yeah. And that the only way to heal um, the ways that our systems work, you know, to get all that cortisol out of our system so that we can operate in a healthy way is to heal that generational trauma. Mm. Um, and it, when we're talking about inclusion and we're helping folks show up, um, you know, sexual harassment is the consequence of a deep need for healing, mm. healing from what folks have learned about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and how we need to show up and engage with one another. And it's, it's about healing to the point where we recognize how joyful and, and pleasurable consent is, right? And how painful not having consent mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that, is, that is an act of healing, is, is recovering from the pain that has caused the situation where you would do things that would hurt another person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I think there are, and any, anything that involves um, interaction between people, um, which is, you know, where I like to show up, <laughs> I'm not going to coach you on writing code, um, <laughs> but I will coach you on how to bring empathy into the code that you write. Mm-hmm. And doing that is from a place beyond just yourself um, and out, outside of fear. Um, and into kind of joyous connection. And to do that, we have to, we have to heal the stuff that we've gotten from systems that, um, that oppress and shame and um, constrain who we think we can be. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. I love that invitation into bringing, starting with empathy and bringing that into what you make recognizing that even if you identify as a maker, a scientist, an engineer, an Mm -hmm. artist, and you think it's just about the thing, how you show up to the thing, the person Mm -hmm. who's standing in front of the easel or sitting in front of the computer is really, really the critical point. The code is just the code. Mm. The idea of separating artists and art is, um, well, that could be a a many hour debate, right? but at the very least we can say it's tough um, and rare, you know? So I think, yeah. And, and one of the things that I do in my cult, my consulting work is we don't just talk about inclusion in terms of your employee population. We talk about it in terms of the products and services that you're bringing to market, right? So how are you creating work that is inclusive? Not just how are you showing up um, and creating a culture, but how, how are the users of, your goods and services, um, experiencing whether they belong there or not, just by Mm -hmm. these sort of unconscious biases that show up in what you assume a person needs, um, in that space or with that, with that product. Yeah. Beautiful. And what I'm hearing in there, and maybe we can just draw this out and really underline it is that a company who can do that well, is going to reach more people. Because someone mm. who might be on the receiving end of that product or service and who doesn't feel like it's for them isn't going to buy it. And someone who mm-hmm. does feel like it's for them is going to engage with it and buy it or use it. Or, and it's going to therefore actually add value to more lives if we're, if we're opening up that aperture and being mindful of not only what we're making, but how we're making it. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, if we're thinking about, um, you know, if we're going to put on our sort of MBA marketing hats, um, which I do (laughs) with great regularity. Um, I, you know, we're going to start talking about not only, um, addressable market, right. Where by creating a more inclusive product service, you have, there's a wider range of folks who now can access, um, and get value out of your, what you're bringing your wares, but also it's going to impact your customer lifetime value, right? Because, that true sense of belonging is what creates loyalty. 
Mm. Um, it's what makes someone feel like this is specifically for me. Mm. Um, and I belong with it and it belongs with me. You know, I mean, this is what happens with like somehow Apple has managed to, to do this to so many people's brains where they, you know, folks think like, this is, this is the, the only kind of stuff that can work the way that I want to work. You know, and I, I have to use this for the rest of my life um, is like if if you're creating something that they truly can connect with and find acceptance, find um, find deep connection with. Right. Then they're never going to stop, you know, buying your services, buying your product. They're never going to leave um, because this is where they belong. Yeah. Lovely. So, again, I just this theme is so clear and present. I want everyone listening to hear this. We often live in an either or, and you just keep inviting us into this both ends. Like you can both be a successful company and be completely conscious of how you make your company as inclusive as possible. And in fact, doing both together is way more powerful than focusing on one or the other. In fact, they just are, are together. And it's, it's that theme of both ends that seems so present for you. Mm. And, and I want to circle on that when it relates to this idea of wholeness. So what I'm hearing you implicitly say, and I want to see if this is right, is that when we heal ourselves, when we integrate things that we thought were either didn't exist or were opposing forces, when we learn how to integrate them, we achieve something, you use the word wholeness. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that there's something in when we achieve, like wholeness is the end state of healing. Is that right? Let me check that first. Would you say that that would be like, if, if we're whole? I think that's what healing aims for is, is, is integrating um, and bringing wholeness. Yeah. yeah. And so it seems to me that many of us as individuals and also as collectives are trying to push away the parts of us that we've been traumatized by or that are ugly that we think are ugly the sort of shadow parts the parts that we don't want to look at the ways in which our ancestors did things that were very harmful to other people like all of that we want to there seems to be a natural impulse to push that away which mm. is like a human thing that we keep doing which i'm hearing you say it creates uh, i don't know what the opposite of wholeness is like fragmentation and fragments mm -hmm. And, and the more that fragmentation happens, it seems to me, the harder it is for people to move towards the thing because they've pushed it so far away that they, they really don't identify with it as part of themselves or as part of their society or as part of their collective identity. And so this is like really, this is like really important work that's really hard. And, and I would just love to hear you talk about how you help people move towards that, the stuff that's the hardest to look at in service mm. of that wholeness. Well, in the words of the great poet, RuPaul, <laughs> if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can mm. I get an amen? Mm. amen. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I think this idea that you can um, that you can show up um, fully. I mean, there's there's so there are again great amounts of data um, in the last you know ten or fifteen years that show that. Being so for with the example of being closeted, being a closeted gay person mm. um, and closeted at work, folks who are not out at work um, but do self-identify as gay perform way, way, way less well, way worse than folks who are out and gay at work. Mm. And that's remarkable, particularly given that by being out, there is on average, going to be some bias and discrimination. Even despite that, performance is way outperformed by being gay, by being out gay um, than by being closeted. Wow. That's wild to me, right? Yeah. And what that, what you know, what is sort of generally understood as the consequence of that is that that kind of authenticity, that kind of safety, that psychological safety of, of 
not covering the energy that it takes to suppress and hide a part of who you are Mm. detract from your ability to actually deliver and perform. Mm. Mm. And so all of the psychic and emotional energy, all the cognitive space that's being taken by working to cover and um, hide whatever parts of you you've decided are unacceptable is taking away from your ability to show up and move forward and, and do the stuff with your brain um, and with your intuition. The more that you are blocked out of certain parts of your core, the less access you have to intuition. Mm. And intuition is a phenomenal leadership competency. The ability to act quickly, to, to build up the wisdom and the knowledge in the background to then be able to trust your gut is really, really important, especially in times of change and uncertainty and, you know, where agility is really necessary, which is true now more than ever, um, and will continue to be more and more true over time, that access to intuition is really important. And the more walls you have up, the more blockages you have, the less you can access that because it's blocking you from that, from that intuition comes from the same place that your, your ego lives. Mm. That's, that's where it's where your core is. That's, that's where it comes from. It's not a, it's not, it's yeah. So there's, there's, it's in, in that sense, the more that we're kind of rejecting um, and avoiding what is actually internally true, um, the less we have access to our ability to deliver and, and, and thrive. Wow. Yeah. I've, that makes, as soon as I heard that, I was like, Oh my God, that makes so much sense. And I actually, however, haven't heard it quite framed that way. And it's a really powerful recognition that it's not like we can just say, go away to something and then Mm -hmm. it goes away and then we have more energy. It's actually like, it's there and we are exerting constant energy to keep it over there. And what Mm -hmm. you're saying is that that exertion of energy is actually a massive drain on other natural capacities we have, intuitive capacities, creative capacities, the ability to connect authentically. All of that is dampened or repressed because we're trying to hold this part at bay. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And I think when you say over there, it's like, where do you think that it's going? You know, it is not leaving your system. The only way that you can, the only way that you can move it around is, to digest it Mm. right and so you can and when you digest it you can either um process it and find a way to like release that you know and and to actually not be holding it but pushing it down doesn't get it out it just kind of shoves it somewhere that you're not looking right now um and so you can either process it to release whatever that holding is or you can discover that when you look at it, there's ways that it actually really serves you and that it's welcome at the table um, and that you can work with it in ways that actually make you better. Right. So it's, it's, there's, it is, it's, yeah, the, the idea of, of putting it over there, um, it is, it's, is, is, it's going to take a lot of energy to even try, <laughs> uh, but it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <Right. laughs> Yeah, I think everyone can relate to those moments where we say or do something that doesn't feel like us. We get, we snap, we lash out, we get really heated and can't remember exactly what happened. Like all of these things were just like, and my sense is that that's that thing that you think you're keeping over there is just finding another way to get out. And it's doing it in a much more dangerous way or unproductive way than if you figured out how to just bring it to the, to this metaphorical table that you described. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's in psychology that's being triggered by past trauma. Right. And that's exactly what we're talking about is like, we're talking about trying to digest process, heal that trauma. Um, And, you know, and sometimes I'm using the little T and sometimes I'm using a capital T trauma. Right. Um, But it's, it's about taking a look at it. Um, and, and seeing it and saying like, okay, you are here. Um, and so I got to figure out how to work with you. Yeah. I'm feeling, I want to help for people who are listening. I think a lot of people are going to be like, oh, okay. I really get this. 
Now, how do I start to work with this? Mm -hmm. Maybe we could play with an example, which I think we mentioned sort of the inner critic or the perfectionist, that part of us that maybe does a lot of work using shame and using kind of to like sort of say like, no, don't be that way. How, how, if I were, if you were talking to someone who's just sitting at home listening and they said, how do Mm -hmm. I start to work with that part of me that's always, always criticizing my behavior or always telling me I need to be more perfect? Like, how is that part useful? I'm getting so sick of that part. Like, I just want to, you know, like, just go away. Let me be, right? Like, how would you start to work? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I can, like, just hear the laughter of any of my friends who are listening to this episode because um, this is a particular journey of my own um, (laughs) where up until not too long ago, I I had a very, I call my inner critic jerk face, or I used to call him jerk face. and that I was just like, no, there is nothing good about jerk face. I reject him. He's not welcome here. Um, and I only recently came around to say, oh, I see jerk face. Jerk face does love me. Um, and he's a voice that I learned really young from my grandfather, who's like the most wonderful person who's ever existed in my life. Um, so I think, um, yeah, my I have a few answers because this is something that comes up a lot, right? And there's a lot of different ways to to think about it. I think um, one thing that was really helpful for me that I've seen be really helpful for clients as well is that um, your inner critic, the part that says you're not doing a good enough job, you really screwed that up, um, you know, there you go, blowing it again. He only wakes up when you're doing something really big, mm. he's, he's taken a snooze. If you're in status quo and you're just like doing what's comfortable and safe, he takes a nap. He's fine. But once you start doing something that's gross, once you start doing something bold, something that's like, you know, that's really getting to your biggest expression of self, he wakes up and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't approve this. Who said, who, who said you could do that? Slow down, slow down, slow down. You're garbage. Um, and he throws these like little poop grenades um, to, to get in the way and to slow you down. Um, and so by noticing that that's, that's what he's a, his showing up is a signal for is when you can, when you start hearing that voice, you can say, oh, it's working. You know, like he's the, the jerk face is awake. That means I'm, I am like, I'm onto something. This is big. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a piece that says, and there's some part of me that wants me to be careful. That's mm-hmm. worried that I'm going to get hurt. That I'm not, that by making this big change, I'm not going to be safe. So is there any kind of wisdom in that? Is there, is there something, is there something I need to give myself to let myself know that, that this is going to be okay. And what's that thing that I need in this moment um, that gives me, again, chills out my jerk face, says like, I got it covered. It's not that big a change. It's not that scary. It's not that risky. It's going to be okay. So that I can keep moving forward. Mm. And I think one question um, that I'd like to ask is, what was the thing you didn't do because you got distracted by that critic, the mm-hmm. comment the critic made. Mm-hmm. What was it you were about to do? do? What was the thing you were about to do and then didn't? And so say more about why, say more about why that question is powerful for people. Because that's what, that's what the critic sort of disrupts, right? It's like you're chugging yeah. along, you're going towards something, something that matters, and you hear this, and it just kind of like either it changes course, slows you down, makes you stop, something like that. Yeah. And sometimes unconsciously, you don't even notice it, but you just, you don't do the thing. You're like, oh, that didn't feel good. I'm going to not do it. Right. And so trying to notice, like, what was it that you were about to do? And was, was the critic right to protect you from it? Or was he just, like, messing with you? Yeah. Um, and so actually make the decision, do you want to go back and do that thing? Um, or do you want to agree with the critic and decide not to do it? But again, and it's, you know... I say this a lot, like, I don't have a judgment about what you should do. I just want you to decide to do it on purpose, you know, and, and make that an, a conscious and intentional decision um, rather than something you're doing unconsciously, um, 
because you're not working with your park. Right. Right. And that framing is so wonderful because it immediately removes shame from the equation. Like there's not a right thing to do. It's simply you have agency and choice as opposed to Mm -hmm. you're, you're responding and choosing as opposed to simply reacting. And my, in my experience with people, it's often the reactions that produce shame because they feel like if there's sort of this subconscious realization that they didn't have choice, that they did or didn't do a thing, and now they feel bad mm-hmm. about it. And now it's like, no, okay, let me really look. This, the, the awakening of the inner critic is some data that tells me that I'm onto something important and also potentially something risky. So let me look at what's important and let me also look at what's risky and really determine, is it as risky as, as my inner critic thinks? Or is he, is he just trying to protect me and, and I can say, thank you, but we're going to be all right. I've got this and move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then where's, there's not really a lot of room for shame there because you've really just engaged with the question as opposed to berated yourself. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I've heard you talk about this, Andy, about um, releasing the um, <clears throat> the sort of like emotional hold that make you make decisions, bad decisions, right? You talk about the different recipes for bad decisions. Um, And the recipe for good decisions is, you know, coming out, coming, getting, coming out of that like pattern, out of that story, out of that trigger, whatever, however you want to describe it when you're like heightened and you're in this emotional place and not sort of accessing your own cognitive ability and creativity. And, excuse me, saying, you know, what do, what, how do I want to be and what do I want to do here? And I think I even, I had a, I had a client a while back who was going on a trip and he was sure that he was going to treat, uh, treat, um, cheat on his partner while he was on this trip. He was like, there are just going to be all these beautiful women. It's going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it. It's terrible. I'm going to do it. And I was like, you know, let's look at that. Yeah. What, what, what does the the decision mean to you? You know, like, what are the reasons, what are the things that are in that, that, what is that, how, what is, what would cheating serve you? You know, like how, what would that give you? Um, and I think, you know, he was really uncomfortable talking because he, he had the sense that like my judgment was that he shouldn't cheat. Right. That like, that that's categorically a bad thing to do. And I was like, you know, you get to do whatever you are going to do whatever you decide to do, but I, I want to help you make a decision to do it instead of just getting into a situation and doing something that isn't what you want to do. Mm. I want you to think through it and decide. Mm. And if you decide that you want to cheat, then that, that is your decision. You get to, you get to make that decision, mm. Mm. but it, it just, you just got to do it on purpose. Yeah. You can't yeah. do it without thinking about it, you know, and ultimately, thankfully, he decided he didn't want to cheat. Um, Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So just, in, but, just um, the way that you empowered him to see that he, so Carl Jung said, has said something to the effect of until we make the unconscious conscious, it will, it will rule our lives and we will call it fate. Mm. A bit, but it's just this idea. Like I can hear in, in your client, that sense of like, I can't do anything. This, this is just going to happen. And it's very <laughs> fatalistic. And that's not a very empowering place to move through your life from. So you didn't mm. judge him. You didn't shame him for and kind of you just said, how do you want to own this as something you have agency over as opposed to a thing that's just going to happen? And then you're going to regret it and feel shitty about it and all that. It's just like much more beautiful, empowering way into those challenging moments. Yeah, because the true inevitability there is that you will make a decision. Yeah. Right. It's just, do you want to do that well, or do you want to do that badly? You know, <laughs> like, do you want to do that in a way that is aligned with who you are in the world, or do you want to do it um, serving some sort of unconscious, whatever it is? You know. Um, and I think, yeah, you, that young reference um, or paraphrase is is exactly right. Mm. So we're coming down the, uh, I'm really grateful that you shared all that. And I think that's going to add impact a lot of people who hear it. The sense that we have a lot more agency than we're aware of. And if we can learn how to engage with the parts of us that we tend to reject, we're actually going to get a lot more capacity, 
creative capacity, intuitive capacity, and agency in our lives. Mm-hmm. One thing I, there's sort of, I want to sort of explore one small, I think it's a small theme, and then one big theme to close this out. <laughs> the small theme is, is around this intuition piece. You've used that word a few times. And because I know you personally, and as you mentioned, we share a lot of fun spaces together. One thing I know about you is that you do that dance, kind of like you described your, your mother doing, between creative, intuitive spaces and um, really sort of scientific hard sort of hard science technology spaces and like for Mm -hmm. instance i know that you use tarot cards sometimes to help you make a decision and then i also know that you use four quadrant matrixes to like sort your decisions (laughs) right so you're like using both of these and and i sense that you're able to use both of these because you're not over identifying with like oh i have to be an intuitive person so i can't be i can't be technical or I have to be an organized person, so I can't look at a tarot card because that's that's woo-woo, right? Like, you're just sort of like, I'm going to hold all of that. I wonder if you can mm-hmm. just talk about really specifically, so that a, so for someone who's like starts to do this work and starts to see more of their creative self come online or more of their organized self come online, like, what's possible for you now that you're able to move through those different ways of thinking and being? Like, how has that impacted you as an entrepreneur, as a human being, and just say a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that um, as you were describing that, I think what came to me, and I, I don't think I've really described it in exactly this way before, but I, I, it's, it's showing up, so I'm going to let it out, is um, there's a question of, I think, I think that everyone has um, a certain point Um, or a level of chaos that they can handle Mm. um, and a level of chaos in which they thrive. Um, And so if you picture a spectrum from no chaos, everything is predictable to complete chaos, nothing is predictable. Um, Different folks have different chunks of that, that spectrum that they would color with red, yellow, green, right. In different ways. And, um, and I think that my green skews a bit further toward the chaos end of that spectrum than, um, than maybe is typical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I say that because I think that that informs my sense, like my, um, again, some of it is intuitive sense of, of where someone, um, so I'm going to layer on top of that, this idea of the three concentric circles of like in the center circle is um, the comfort zone mm-hmm. in the, the outer outermost circle is danger zone, right? Where everything is very scary and it's too much. And then in between is the stretch zone. And that's where, that's where you, you grow. That's where you learn. It's where you expand. It's like leaning into stretch um, that feels safe enough um, that you're not in a, in a danger zone. And so when I can sense that we're kind of moving into um, the danger zone, then that when there's too much chaos, what you need is safety. What you crave is, is safety and security. And that, that served really well with two by two matrix matrices <laughs> and, you know, frameworks yeah. and, yeah. you know, these kinds of more technical um, structures where we kind of organize things out of chaos and into either complexity complicatedness or simplicity Mm. um and that uh that when we're too rigid when we're in too simple a space what we really need to do is invite a little more chaos right and that's Mm -hmm. where this sort of like like getting a little bit leaning more into um evolving into more um nuance and more complexity and saying like things can be richer um and uh, yeah, and that we can kind of invite more of that art into that space, you know, that we, we need to recognize that complexity actually creates innovation um, mm-hmm. and creativity and that, um, yeah, that like leaning into that zone can open up possibility in some ways. Oh, that's super helpful. Yeah, there's this sense that we might be able to check in with where we are, like, oh, am I in a really safe zone right now and a really organized simplistic zone let me see how i might introduce more a little more creative chaos into my into my Mm -hmm. my thinking into my feeling and so 
okay, I'm going to pull three tarot cards and just like, just make an interpretation of what they mean about this moment. Yeah. We need a new way of looking at it, right? We need to, we need to break the mental models um, that are kind of narrowing us into like one sense and say, and create some expansiveness and say like, what's, what's a new way. And that's exactly like, and the tarot, I, I do love tarot. Um, and, you know, even regardless of whether you believe in magic, it's, uh, it's, it's a really nice facilitative tool um, where, and it, the tarot can actually kind of work both ways, right? Because it is a framework. It is a very structured system. There's yeah. suits, there's numbers, there's, there's a hero's journey. Like there's like a whole kind of story there. Um, and so it can be, you know, focusing on one card. If you do a one card pull in, in like a situation where you're like, what is everything anyhow? Um, it gives you just one way to look at it and you say, Oh, it's the sword. We're talking about, we're talking about logic and, and, um, and thought and, uh, creativity. Mm. Like, Oh, okay. And it's, you know, it's the, it's the four, which means you need to like chill out for a second. Right. And like, well, you know, so it's like, like, okay, what would that mean for this situation? What is that one little piece? How do we break it into that thing? Um, but it could also just be like, oh, I, that's a totally different way of thinking about this challenge, right? Like, how is this the wheel of fortune? How is it coming back around? Mm. Um, and what does that mean for the situation? You know, and so it can it can really, the tarot is actually kind of nice because it can kind of play on the whole spectrum. Yeah, yeah, you could use um, it if you're in chaos, you could use it to bring structure. Or if you're in structure and rigidity, you could use it to open up a new possibility. Exactly, yeah. Great, Great. that's an awesome example. Okay, cool. So there's just this, dance between uh chaos and rigidity and for each person there's a stretch zone where they might need a little bit more chaos or maybe stretch a little more structure but that's a place where we can Mm -hmm. all kind of that's really helpful thanks for sharing that yeah yeah and i think um yeah just noticing where you are um i think the one last thing that i'll throw into that is that there's also um the book flow um yeah by shikshmahal um, and he talks about, um, that the flow zone, right. And flow is defined as sort of optimal experience where you are sort of in a, in the zone, right. You're kind of like, you're cooking and you don't even notice time passing and everything is, is really effective and productive and stuff like that. Um, that it is the right balance of challenge, um, and skill. So in, and this is, this sort of falls into the same sort of three circle thing where you have too much skill and not enough challenge. That's the, like that middle circle where you're not growing, you're getting, you're actually, it's kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have too much, uh, ch- challenge and not enough skill, that's the danger zone, right? You're like, I don't know how to handle it. It's too much. So it's matching, um, the skill and the challenge. And so when you, when you kind of start noticing where you are, um, on either side of that, that flow zone, that's when you know what to introduce to the system Um, is like, Oh, I need more challenge. Right. I am, I am toiling away in boredom zone. Um, And, and my skills and my, 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 the full breadth of my ability is not being captured. Um, I need to, I need to introduce some, some chaos. Mm. Um, Or we're on the other end where it's like the chaos is too much challenge. I don't know how to process this. It's too much for my system. I need to find a way to bring down the challenge or increase my skill um, mm. to be able to manage in the system. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And the flow work is so important. I'll make sure we include a link to that in the show notes. But that's that space, that zone of development where we live, where, where the challenge is just like a, an inch past our skill. And so we're forced mm-hmm. up skill to meet the challenge. But our skill is is at a level that we can get to that next level without like breaking down. Right. So it's just that dance. Beautiful. Okay. We have covered some awesome territory, really enjoying it. <laughs> and, um, you know, we can take the time we need to, to take to wrap up here. So we don't have a hard, hard stop, but I feel like the last space I want to invite us into, which is both, which is a space that's so big that we could have a whole conversation just in this space. I don't want you to feel like you've got to answer the whole question, but, the driving question for this podcast is what is your fiercest hope for humanity? And we've been spending a lot of time really at the individual level on this call, which is great. Like we all have to, as individuals, I hear you say, wake up and integrate and bring all of us to the table. But then there's Mm -hmm. also this collective. We are humanity. We are species. And I wonder how what we've talked about today for you shows up at that 
collective level? We've, we've touched on it a bit, but maybe you could just say more about in the context of humanity, what you're hoping for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that um, <laughs> it's quite a wrap-up question. I think the uh, the 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 expansion of um, self, you know, we're so I'll use the word inclusion, right? Yeah. So when we talk about making space for all of your parts um, and wiping away the shame that you have, and and you know, getting gaining access to your intuition and your ego and your the core pieces and and being able to, um, you know, dance in the right level of, of uncertainty and not being too rigid and stuff like that. Like those are all micro examples of what I am asking for on a, on a macro scale, which is like, how do we also make space for each other? Hmm. Um, and how do we relax whatever, um, whatever societal trauma we have that made it such that we felt like different was bad, right? And that different is scary. Um, and get to a place where everybody agrees with me that finding somebody that's different from you is a huge opportunity um, to expand your own sense of self and possibility. And so when we do that at a, at a larger scale, we start recognizing that there's a lot of normative assumptions that we make um, in this obsession with similarity. Right. And so when we say, you know, when we have someone who shows up um, with a, you know, marginalized identity or um, way of being or, or ability, right, that we see that as like a special exceptional ask. Right. And even the word like when we quote unquote accommodate, right, the idea of accommodating is like, well, this is what's normal. But I guess we can accommodate that. Mm. And it's like, well, you know, that normative bias, right, is like if we could shift toward understanding that it's not exceptional, it's just different, right? It's not worse, it's different. The fact that we have these standards that are built around an assumptive, you know, male, white, upper middle class, able-bodied, um, cisgendered, heterosexual, you know, like that, that's all of these systems are sort of built around that assumption, um, that, you know, um, and, and male specifically, like not like non, non-primary caregiver, right? Like uh, office hours are structured around that assumption, stuff like that is that we say like, oh, this one is a parent who has to go pick up their kids, and so we need to make an exception and let them leave a little early or something. It's like, you know, how do, how do we just like create a more expansive sense of, and I think we're seeing this with, with right now we're in this coronavirus situation where folks are working from home and their kids are from home and like, you know, and I'm seeing a lot of the companies that are, I think going to survive this really well are the ones who are being adaptive and saying like, okay, we just, we need to all be rolling with who has availability because this one's going down for a nap or this one's, you know, like, but that's just part of the system now. Um, so I guess all that's to say that it's, it's a challenge to our system of what we perceive as normal, right. And just creating a little bit more of an expansive self sense of possibility. Um, and, you know, and, and instead of recognizing members of our community as like the jerk face that we want to kick out. Right. Is saying like, no, that person, those people, that group, that identity, that force is here. Mm. Um, and how do we, how do we work with it? How do we, how do we connect with its needs and what's underlying it? Um, and invite it into the space and say, you belong here too. And I remember just thinking what you said about all the energy it takes to not like to keep that away as if there's some away to go to, right. It's just like, we can just- right release all of that energy, what would open up for us collectively? We suddenly had all of this ability to work, not just across difference, but with difference, to integrate difference and have something that both feels like we belong and has enough diversity and, and creativity to come up with new, fresh, innovative ideas and that we're not just all ending up on the same track. It would just, it would just mm. be beautiful. There's a really st- specific example of this. So sometimes... I find uh, that a lot of people, particularly a lot of white men that I work with who are very 
open to what you're talking about, but are also not sure how to find their way into it are just like looking for some concrete examples. And, and there's a, an, an analogy in, in the architecture world called this idea of universal design. So basically if you design something that's <clears throat> universally accessible, the really cool byproduct of that design is that the space becomes great for everyone. So it's mm-hmm. not like by making, um, making ramps, for instance, that are beautifully designed and easy to get onto for a wheelchair user. Someone who doesn't use a wheelchair has to like, how do I go up this ramp? It's like, oh, no, this is beautiful. I can walk up this ramp. It's like really easy to access. There's a Japanese designer who made, we see them everywhere in cities. They're like the yellow uh, bumpy things that go on the sidewalk and they're like right at those yep. places where that let you access the street. And so those are designed for wheelchair users to make it easier for them to get off the sidewalk and go across the crosswalk and get the other side. But as it turns out, they make they make it really easy for anyone to stand on the corner. They make it safer if it's icy. Like there are all of these other benefits that come from yeah. thinking about what's best for everyone as opposed to what's best for the people who are at the center. And I love that. That's what I'm hearing in your invitation. It's like, it's not about saying, sorry, white guys, like, you're out. See you later. It's like, no, let's actually design right. for everyone because you're going to love it too. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right? right. Because you, again, because you are not just a white guy, right? <laughs> you are also all of these other things, right? And there are folks, there are white guys who um, have physical disability challenges or have, you know, vision challenges or have, you know, all of these different things that actually make them benefit. And I think, you know, this, the universal safety element and, and universal human centered design is exactly right. Like, and I, we, that's something that, um, my, the darkest horse, my consulting firm, we talk about a ton, um, is, you know, the one example that I use and my co-founder is fine with me, um, sharing this information about her, but she has, um, very strong ADHD. Hmm. Um, and when we first started working together, I would write things and I would write things like the university of Chicago student that I am, um, (laughs) or alumni that I am, uh, and it would be these like thick blocks of text, you know, and like really sort of (laughs) tough to read, honestly, for probably everyone, but she in particular (laughs) would sit there. I, there were times when I would look up and she was just like, was focusing so hard, trying so hard to read the document I just made. And she would get to a point sometimes and just say, I'm really sorry. I just, I can't read this. Like I can't, I'm really trying and I can't. And, and it was like, Oh, of course here, let me break this up into smaller chunks. Let me bold the parts that are the keywords I want you to let me put some in bullets. Let me underline the thing that's the action item. Like I can absolutely do that. And so I started doing that in my writing and it turned out that everyone could read it better. Yeah. You know, I'd send an email and you could just look at it and you could see what the information was instead of having <laughs> to like experience my prose, you know. Um, Which I'm sure was lovely, and, by the way. <laughs> there's, you know, a time and a place. But, um, but yeah, no, it's that, that is not conducive to easy consumption, yeah. right? Um, and I see the same stuff. I work in, in deaf spaces a lot. Um, and you know, doing things like making the lighting such that you can actually see a person's mouth when they're speaking, mm-hmm. right? And actually be able to distinguish where their hands are and that, you know, adding a light to the, the doorbell so it's not just a noise because like, what if you're playing music? It would be great to have a flashing light as well. Like mm-hmm. there are all of these ways that doing stuff like that is actually really helpful for everybody. Um, and there are ways that using, shifting into a virtual context and using technology in this way creates that kind of um, expansive inclusion and actually just makes everybody able to contribute in a more powerful way. Love it. Rada, it's amazing. Yeah. Thank you for creating space in your work with the people you work with for these nuanced, curious, integrative conversations. And thank you also for creating that space on this call. It's been so fun to dance with you around these topics. And I'm really, I really have a sense that people hearing this will walk away inspired and also empowered to maybe engage with some parts of themselves that have been producing shame or anxiety or or self-doubt or any of that. So really, I feel a sense of the healing energy that you bring to your work coming through. I'm really grateful that you share that. Awesome. Ditto. Thank you. This has been a delight. Looking forward to years more of this with you. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for creating the space and inviting me into it. Yeah, such a treat. 
All right, I can't wait to get this out in the world. Until the next time, Rada Jovovich, wonderful to have you on The Wonder Dump. Ditto. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Okay. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you're interested in learning more about my coaching work, or if you'd like to get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings, sign up for my newsletter in the link below. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.